Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Celeste Ng. Celeste Ng earned her degree in English at Harvard University and her MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan. Her first novel, Everything I Never Told You, was a New York Times bestseller, the winner of the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, the Massachusetts Book Award, the Amazon Book of the Year, and a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. Her fiction and essays have appeared widely, including One Story, The Guardian, Triquarterly, and The New York Times. 
She's also the recipient of a Pushcart Prize and a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. Celeste Ng is here today to talk about her second, much-anticipated novel, Little Fires Everywhere, a book that has received the coveted starred review from Kirkus, Booklist, Library Journal, and Publishers Weekly. Peter Ho-Davies says of Little Fires Everywhere that it is a dazzling protean work, a comedy of manners that doubles as a social novel and reads like a thriller. By turns wry, heart-rending, and gimlet-eyed, it confirms Celeste Ng's genius for gripping literary fiction. Jody Picoult adds, With brilliance and beauty, Celeste Ng dissects a microcosm of American society just when we need to see it beneath the microscope. How do questions of race stack up against the comfort of privilege, and what role does that play in parenting? Is motherhood a bond forged by blood or by love? And perhaps most important, do the faults of our past determine what we deserve in the future? Be ready to be wowed by Ng's writing and unsettled by the mirror held up to one's own beliefs. Welcome to Between the Covers, Celeste Thank you Ng. so much for having me. In preparing for this interview in particular, I couldn't think of any other person other than one other interview that I've done that so uses place as character. And I just wanted to um, mention this conversation I had with Jonathan Lethem. I don't know if you read Dissident Gardens, but it takes place in Queens in the 1930s. But it doesn't just take place in Queens. It takes place in a, a place called Sunnyside Gardens, which is one of the first planned communities in the United States that arose um, around the Garden City movement. And because he's looking at Jewish, a Jewish communist family in the 1930s, and these gardens are, are properties where people have shared um, communal spaces, and they're all being taxed towards like a, um, these, the upkeep of these common spaces, you feel this conversation going on between his characters and the actual way in which their um, neighborhood is organized and planned. So I was hoping we could start with Shaker Heights as a character, and maybe you could talk a little bit about the history of Shaker Heights, some of the rules, and some of the um, the the sort of tone that we enter that is the tone of the of the space rather than of the people in the space. Sure. Um, so this novel really grew out of my wanting to write about Shaker Heights, which is my hometown, um, it's where I lived from about age ten until I went away to college. And is a place that I really loved and I um, I still love. And it was after I'd been away from home for about a decade that I kind of realized how unusual Shaker Heights was. You know, I had just enough distance to kind of look back on it with a little bit more clarity than I could have when I was living there. Shaker Heights was one of the first planned communities in the United States. Uh, it was incorporated in 1912 by uh, these two brothers called the Van Swearingen Brothers. And their idea was that they were going to purchase this tract of land um, right outside of the east side of Cleveland uh, that had previously been owned by a group called the North Union Shakers, the, of the religious um, utopian society. And they thought, we're going to build this perfect community. Um, so that people who don't want to live in Cleveland anymore can move out here to the country, as they thought of it at the time, and um, we're going to build this sort of perfect little world. And Shaker Heights, really, from its beginning, has had everything sort of planned out with that 
that kind of goal um, from what color the houses on the street could be. Uh, they didn't want everything to look the same, but they wanted to make sure nothing would clash, no colors clashing. So there would be these uh, prescriptions about what colors you could use depending on what style house you had. Um, it had to, they had a lot of regulations about what uh, how the streets could be laid out, um, you know, thinking about we're going to slow traffic down here, we're going to set the school here so that children don't have to cross any major roads to get to school. They can all walk. Um, that kind of level of planning um, really has been part of the community since the very beginning. Hmm. And even there was what, how often you, you mow your lawn or where what you do with your trash. Exactly. Um, so a few of these are, are anecdotes in the book. Uh, the community really wants, uh, they're very concerned with curb appeal and with the appearance of the community being tidy and orderly and, and well kept. And so if you don't mow your lawn, uh, if you go away on vacation, for example, and you don't have anyone come to mow it for you, the city will come and mow it for you if it gets too long, and then they'll send you a bill for the yard work that they've done for you. And similarly, on garbage day, you can't put your garbage at the front of the house on the curb because that will make the street look messy, and they don't want that even for a very short period of time. So the garbage cans have to stay at the back of the house, which is also where the garage doors have to be because they don't want garage doors on the front of the house. Those are unsightly too. And the community has a fleet of tiny little garbage trucks that are golf cart size that go down every person's driveway and pick up the garbage in the back and bring it to the garbage truck in the front. Um, you know, so that level of care of making sure that you know your house always appears sort of picture perfect from the outside, I feel like is is one of the very unusual things about Shaker Heights. And I learned, um, I knew some of them when I was living there, and then I learned a lot more of them as I started to research the community that I didn't even realize were things we had to do. So, so the part that I um, found the, the least easy to connect to other places that maybe I've known, when I think about just those, I feel like it, those rules and that history, perhaps I can imagine other places in the United States. But Shaker Heights also is uh, foregrounding a desire for a sort of progressive vision around diversity around racial diversity. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's been a really important part of the community since the 50s. Uh, in the 1950s, somebody planted a bomb at the house of a black lawyer who was living in Shaker Heights. Um, and of course, in the 50s at that time, um, this is sort of the time around white flight started to happen. There were a lot of issues around segregation. And the community kind of came together and decided this was going to be a turning point and decided that they were going to actively integrate the community. Um, and in researching the history of Shaker Heights, I learned a lot of stuff that I, I had no idea that they had even done, that for a long time they would offer subsidies, um, basically loans at really favorable terms to black families who are willing to move to majority white neighborhoods and to white families who are willing to move to majority black neighborhoods. Um, so I was really interested in the way that that sort of um, utopian goal that, you know, it's really laudable, we want to um, kind of actively promote racial integration and diversity. It's sort of accomplished through this very bureaucratic kind of um, rule-fixated way. Um, And that's really how a lot of things in Shaker Heights are, that they have these sort of idealistic goals and they're being accomplished through these, you know, kind of small, picky little pieces of legislation. So so you open uh, Little Fires Everywhere with two epigraphs about Shaker Heights. So the first is an advertisement from the creators and developers of Shaker Village, which promises protection against depreciation and unwelcome change. And the second is a 1963 article from Cosmopolitan, and I'm just going to quote it. Um, And this is what Cosmopolitan says in the 60s. 
all things considered, people from Shaker Heights are basically pretty much like people everywhere else in America. They may have three or four cars instead of one or two. They may have two televisions instead of one. And when a Shaker Heights girl gets married, she may have a reception for 800 with the Meyer Davis band flown from New York instead of a wedding reception for 100 with a local band. But these are all differences of degree rather than fundamental differences. We're friendly people, and we have a wonderful time, said a woman at Shaker Heights Country Club recently, and she was right, for the inhabitants of Utopia do in fact appear to lead a rather happy life. So the, the, the way I felt this sense of defamiliarization around this place that you grew up in, that you're, that you're f- discovering the history of but was normal for you, is when I think of someone with an advertisement saying, will protect you against depreciation or unwelcome change, that's often looked at, especially in an upper middle class or upper class community that's planned as code for keeping out people of color or um, of housing covenants that would not depreciate your values. But here we have this scenario where we see a lot of this code, but we're actually also seeing something that seems to trouble the code. And I was just curious if, if class and race stratified differently than it did elsewhere in America. Yeah, so the first epigraph, which was from the um, the Vince Waringen Company, the f- sort of founders of the town, where they're trying to convince people to move there around the turn of the century, um, they actually did start out with a lot of the 99-year covenants where they say, you know, you to promise that you're not going to change these things, all your neighbors have to approve who you, you, know, you sell your house to, which was, as you said, code for keeping out basically black people at the time. Um, there was also some uh, sort of animosity directed towards Jewish people in that area, but um, it, it seems like pretty early on there were a lot of Jews living in Shaker Heights, and um, it was really sort of coded towards people of color. Um, and so it is really unusual that in the 50s, the community really actively decided that they were going to um, kind of change that prevailing attitude, and that by 1963, when the second epigraph was written, um, that that kind of almost planned diversity was part of the community and has been ever since. Um, the The second epigraph came, came about because Shaker Heights had been deemed the wealthiest community in the United States at that time. And Cosmopolitan, uh, just before Helen Gurley Brown came in, was still sort of a general interest family magazine, and they did a profile of the community like they would do a profile of a person. I think there's also a profile of the Kennedys in this issue. So it was really like they were treating Shaker Heights as if it were a character. And kind of highlighted all the different ways in which they sort of um, were were very actively embracing that idea that they were going to be the exemplars of this new way of living. Um, that line at the beginning that basically Shaker Heights people are pretty much like everybody else implicitly, except a little bit better. Um, I think that's very much sort of how Shaker Heights um, maybe still views itself. And I think that's very much how it is viewed by other communities in the area, Mm -hmm. that they want to be kind of normal and everyday, but a little bit better, you know, Mm -hmm. just the the, the example setters. And so I think that was what kind of led them to, in the 50s, decide, like, we're going to be the leaders of sort of, you know, social and racial integration. Um, that's a role that they've sort of taken on of being like, we're going to be just like everyone else, but a little bit better. The main family in in Little Fires Everywhere is the Richardsons, and and they are sort of exemplars of the ethos of the town. But I would love it if you could introduce us to the nonconformist family that moves to Shaker Heights and sort of disrupts 
business as usual just by their very presence, not necessarily with any intention to do so. Yeah, the Richardsons are sort of the living embodiment of Shaker Heights. They've um, been there for several generations. They're the kind of, um, you know, typical, you know, American picket fence family where you have mother, father, um, four teenagers. And Mia Warren and her daughter Pearl, who come in from out of town and rent a house from the Richardsons, are really their opposites in a lot of ways. Um, Mia is a single mother, first of all, so there's no father figure here. She doesn't talk about who Pearl's father is or where Pearl came from. Um, They move around a lot in contrast to the Richardsons having been there for generations. Mia and Pearl move frequently. They've lived in, you know, 40 something towns in their lives and they they pick up and move whenever they feel like it. Uh, Mia doesn't have a lot of possessions. They move around basically with only what they can fit into their Volkswagen. So not very much. And they also um, don't fit people's ideas about what you know mothers and daughters are supposed to look like. Mia is an artist, so she doesn't have um, what we call a stable career. Um, she's really not interested in material things or in any of that sort of stuff. She's really sort of focused on her artwork. Um, she does a lot of work with photography. And um, just their presence, as you said, kind of unsettles the Richardson family and the community because they're so different. They're kind of breaking out of all of the kind of confines of what roles people are supposed to be playing in this community. And, and notably, they're not planners. They're really not. They they're kind not of, planners of the future. Exactly. They kind of go by the seat of their pants. Um, yeah. Mia will kind of decide, oh, we're going to move. It's, you know, I need new inspiration or I'm tired of being here or I feel like moving and they go. And um, Shaker Heights is all about planning. And the Richardson family is all about planning. Mrs. Richardson is sort of very rule oriented. She gets um, she gets kind of perturbed when things don't go the way that she wanted them to. And so far, for the most part, her life has been going according to the plan that she set out for herself. Well, one of the things that Mia and Pearl coming into the community introduce is the issue of class also. And I think you handle the class dynamic really well. And I particularly like the scene where all the Richardson children, so the children from Shaker Heights, are spending the afternoon on the couch together watching Jerry Springer as sort of a theater of the spectacle of class. And this is one way in which it almost feels like by watching these poor people in all of their disgrace on TV, maybe that is one less charming way in which they feel like they're a little bit better than everybody else. I think that's right. I mean, I have to admit that as a teenager in the 90s, I watched my fair share of Jerry Springer at, you know, friends' houses after school. It always always seemed to be on. Whatever time you turned on the TV, it always seemed to be on. And, you know, I remember that we kind of enjoyed it the way that people, I think, maybe enjoy sort of, you know, like the, the pro wrestling that with a lot of theatrics and and all of that. And in looking back on that now, I feel um, uncomfortable and a little bit ashamed about that because there is a big class difference there um, that, you know, part of the reason that we are able to enjoy these people acting, as we would have said, crazy is because it, there's the feeling that we will never be in that situation, that these people are somehow lower than us or lesser than us and that we're better. And that is, I think, something that the teenagers feel, even if they don't articulate it. Um, each of them has a different reason for kind of liking the show. One of them sort of looks at it as almost like an anthropological um, film where these, you know, these people are so different from her that she might as well be reading Margaret Mead. And somebody else looks at them almost as a psychological study. It's almost like he's studying depravity. Um, And it's not malicious, but it's their unawareness of that class issue is one of the blind spots that they have. 
In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to Celeste Ng about her second book, Little Fires Everywhere. So in your first book, Everything I Never Told You, which also takes place in Ohio, is about an interracial marriage. And in Little Fires Everywhere, one of the several points of tension is around an interracial adoption. Uh, when the Richardson kids are watching this spectacle of poverty with Jerry Springer, it makes them feel grateful to live in Shaker Heights. And part of that gratitude also comes from their sense that people don't see race here, that Shaker Heights is truly an utopia, and that this, at least in the mind of this white family, it is a post-racial community. Um, if I hadn't read interviews that you had done prior to preparing, I would think you were doing a send-up of the hubris and self-regard of Shaker Heights, reading the book, with the Richardson family, sort of emblematic of white naivete around racial relations in the city. But when I read your interviews, you often say that you experienced race in a largely positive way growing up, and that it wasn't only diverse, but that the community was engaged in race in a healthy way. So if that's true, I was just wanting you to talk more in this regard choosing to have the community and specifically the Richardson family claim not to see race and, and what you're troubling with around your own experience in the city. Yeah, part of that has to do with the time period. Um, you know, the book is set in the late 1990s, which is the time that I was a teenager there. I would have been the same age as the um, the oldest Richardson child, Lexi. And the way that I remember um, sort of you showed your racial awareness at that time was to be, you know, quote unquote, um, race blind, that, you know, people really said things like, I don't see race. And what they meant was that race, um, you know, race isn't important to me or I'm not, you know, this is this is my way of showing that I'm aware of this issue. And I think now we see why that's a problematic stance to have and why it's a problematic thing to say, um, which is that. You know, if you don't see a huge aspect of someone's life and experience, you are kind of devaluing all of the experiences that they've had walking around in that skin, you know, living as a person of color or living as, you know, um, somebody who's visibly different um, and living in the context of a world that is discriminated based on race. Um, and so part of the um, part of the difference, I think, has to do with the time period that it's it's been 20 years and we're still talking about these issues but I like to think at least that we've moved beyond that phase of just blithe, innocent, you know, we don't see race here. We're so lucky. So even as people were saying, I don't see race, um, you know, and I I feel like that was an attitude that I was also trying to cultivate at the time. Um, I think that there was still obviously racism, you know, that we would hear certain things that we now might call microaggressions, but where we kind of bumped up against the reality of, of course, you see race because race is there. So, of course, you see it if you don't pretend to. And so a lot of that um, kind of disparity between sort of my experience there and then what we now see as them being sort of willfully naive, um, I think has to do with the perspective of time that we've started to just see this issue in a more complicated way. Yeah. Well, at least some of us. I know I see all the time people saying, um, I treat everybody the same. It, it, Anybody who comes into my life, I treat them the same. But you make this interesting point, and it's not specific to this book, but this idea around uh, this interracial, around interracial marriage or interracial adoption, that it wasn't until the 60s that, or up until the 60s, interracial marriage was illegal in a lot of places. And it wasn't until the 90s that half of America approved of interracial marriage. Yeah, that was a shocking statistic that I learned when I was writing my first novel. Um, I think 
many people now have heard about Loving v. Virginia, which is the case that made interracial marriage legal throughout the United States because there's been a movie about it and there's been a lot of um, talk about it recently, um, especially with its parallels towards same-sex marriage. But it was a real shocker to me that it wasn't until 1997 that um, a Gallup poll found that half, more than half of the people actually felt that that was okay. Mm-hmm. Because 1997 doesn't seem like that long ago. I mean, I remember 1997. I could drive a car in 1997, you know, and this book is set partly in 1997 and 1998. Um, And so I I do think that there, while I'm optimistic about the direction that we're heading in, um, it it still is very clear that we have a long way to go. I mean, there are still people who, as you said, insist that they are colorblind um, or that these things don't matter. Um, I'm thinking in particular about the debates that have been going on in uh, in terms of casting in Hollywood. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about um, doing what we call like race bent uh, adaptations where um, if white characters are changed into people of color, there are a number of white people who get very angry about this. Um, and likewise, those same people often don't understand the problem. What's wrong if you take someone who, you know, in the comic book was supposed to be, a, you know, a, a Tibetan man and you change that character into Tilda Swinton, right? And and to try to explain how those two things are not the same and that this is not an equal power dynamic, I'm like, okay, we still do have a lot, a lot of work mm-hmm. ahead of us. I think so, too. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit further about the interracial adoption, which feels like it becomes one of the most potent um, areas of tension within the book. And there's a lot of, I mean, this is a perfect title, Little Fires Everywhere, because there's a lot of of areas of tension in this book. But we have a well-off white family that adopts an Asian child whose original biological mother was living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, And this this, uh, mother, the biological mother, wants her child back. So um, we're set into a scenario where um, the town is is dividing uh, around this issue. You you were on a podcast called The Mixed Experience where you talked about other among other things about stereotypes you wanted to avoid in your first book. So the the tiger mom stereotype mm-hmm. for Asian mothers and you talked about how Asian women tend to get exoticized or eroticized whereas Asian men tend to get desexualized. Um, I was curious if there were any stereotypes that you were particularly aware of that either you were wanting to avoid or wanting to employ uh, as part of this uh, tension that's happening in the town around mothering and adoption. Yeah, there. Um, so there are two um, sort of Asian mothers in the book. Um, one of them is a minor character, and then one of them is the uh, biological mother of this baby. Um, one of the biological mother is a waitress. Um, she's a recent immigrant. You know, her English is not that great. And the other one is the mother of um, you know one of the teenagers' friends. She's uh, a doctor. She's high achieving. She's well spoken. Um, and I I wanted to kind of make sure that I wasn't sort of skewing towards one or the other, this idea of the sort of like the noble peasant, like of the Pearl S. Buck mode of the like, she's very poor, but she's very good hearted and she works very hard. You know, the biological mother, I hope, is a complicated figure. She is working very hard. She is living paycheck to paycheck. She does make some bad decisions, right? Um, and I wanted to um, to not play into the stereotype of the Asians as the model minority, which I think is so often um, a role that's pushed on Asians. But I also didn't want to play into the, oh, you're just an unskilled immigrant who came over and you don't know what you're doing. Like, I wanted her to seem like 
a real person. And that's sort of the the line that I was trying to take. Hmm. Well, you have this this story that you wrote in Gulf Coast called How to Be Chinese, which to me feels like a really nice companion piece to this novel. Um, it's about an ethnically Chinese person being adopted by a white family. But in that case, the point of view is the Chinese adoptee who has the American name Mackenzie Altman, which I think is great. Um, but in it, she says about her mother, she has taken you to a Chinese restaurant on your birthday every year. She has always bought you panda teddy bears, the Asian Barbie. And that reminded me a lot of the the well-intentioned, perhaps, but not very well thought out or researched sort of cliched gestures of this uh, white family who'd adopted this child. Uh, and, and I was I was if you, hoping you maybe you would talk more about you know, sort of good intentions and the limitations of good intentions in Absolutely. this regard. Um, so the story, How to Be Chinese, um, really had its roots in a website that a friend in grad school sent to me. We were in Ann Arbor. And I don't know how she found this website, but she stumbled across it and sent it to me. And it was a list of resources for adoptive parents of Chinese children in Washtenaw County, which is the county that Ann Arbor is in. And it listed a lot of different things, starting from sort of social resources and resources for learning Mandarin. And it's intended for parents who've adopted children from China. And then it moved along to haircuts. Here's a place that gives very good haircuts to small Asian people. And then it moved along to here are some Chinese restaurants in the area. And here's Peaceable Kingdom, which is a wonderful store in Ann Arbor where they sell a lot of toys that come from China. And it, what struck me about it was the sort of um, two things simultaneously, the extreme good intentions and the real desire to try and um, give children something that, you know, we've, we feel they need, that they get this connection to their birthright culture. And then also the complete inadequacy of the place that we're in and maybe of the well-intentioned people that, that made this list to do those things, you know, like, I don't know how I would begin to give someone access to a culture that was not my own. I don't I have no idea. And I would probably come up with a list that sounds as, as cringeworthy as that. And yet their intention so clearly is to do what they can. Um, and so that's where the story How to Be Chinese came from. I sort of started thinking about the things that a parent might do. And in that story, I really looked at the mother as being a sympathetic figure. Um, her Her daughter, the adoptee, I think is a little bit scornful of her mother until she goes out to try to to learn how to be Chinese when she goes off to college and finds also that she's sort of stymied in her access to this culture in all kinds of different ways. You know, she doesn't know how to play mahjong. She doesn't know, you know, all of the things that she's supposed to do. She doesn't understand feng shui. She dates this Chinese guy and there's a huge culture clash between them. And so I think she comes around to sort of seeing her mother's intentions for what they are, which is that they are a gesture of love. And that was sort of where I wanted to, to go in this um, in Little Fires Everywhere as well, that, as you said, we're talking about sort of the um, how far your intentions can take you and at the same time recognizing that good intentions aren't always necessarily enough, um, that the, the adoptive parents or the would-be adoptive parents in the novel really do want to do well by this baby, um, they just maybe don't have the tools to give her what she needs. And so the question is, you know, what do you do about that? That's a question that I tried to pose of all the parents. And what's really interesting, just listening to you talk right now and and really um, allowing space for complexity and and sort of moving towards nuance as, as having a, a specific value here. Like you're not just dismissing the this gesture by the mother, but you're also sort of calling it to account at the same time. I feel like that's one of the big strengths of this book. And I couldn't help but think about your dad and the way you connected your dad's um, work with explosives 
to this book because I, I, I listened to you talking about that, or maybe I read about it prior to reading the book, and it was in my head because of it, it, he. Maybe you can before I even connect the two. Can you tell us a little what he did with explo- explosions? Uh, sure. So my dad was a physicist, um, and. When I was a child, we were living in Pittsburgh, and he was working at something called the Bureau of Mines, which I think has now been um, subsumed into the Department of the Interior. And when I was a, a kid, I didn't really understand what mines were, um, you know, or, or what this had to do with physics or anything. But what I did know about my dad was that periodically, uh, one of the things he got to do for his work was to set off these very large mine explosions. And so we have a lot of home videos of um, my dad standing there with this huge grin on his face. And then there's this huge explosion in the <laughs> in the background. Um, and, you know, I, what I n- now understand is that um, he was really kind of working on combustion and they were trying to figure out ways to prevent mine explosions. And so part of the way they did that was to set off mine explosions. What's really interesting to me about it, and you were connecting this enterprise of how much would it take to cause something to explode and, or how much can I take out and, and, and not have it explode or have it explode to your own writing. And I feel like part of the way in which you ratchet up tension there's little fires. There literally are little fires everywhere. But there's also a way in which you don't allow us to take sides because you lean into complexity and nuance. So you, you extend empathy to people who are making blunders and you deepen that empathy to a point where it becomes it feels like things are going to explode more and more. The Weirdly, the more empathetic you are to your own characters, because it'd be very easy to write a book or easier to write a book around this interracial adoption and just purely lampoon one side or the other versus making both sides more complicated. Because I found myself going back and forth. So you'd give me a new piece of information, and then I would have to reevaluate where I was. I'm really glad to hear that because um, one of the things that I really wanted was to just show how complicated these situations are. There is not an easy, clear answer. Um, And so often there isn't in cases like this. Um, One of the things that was really important to me in this novel was that there not be a clear villain. Um, I wanted all of the characters, even if you didn't like what they did or you didn't approve of what they did, you thought you would never do something like that. At least you could understand why they did it and where they were coming from. Um, I have a seven-year-old at home, and I'm learning that this age apparently is all about good guys and bad guys. And one of the things that I keep talking about with him is that bad guys often don't think that they are the bad guys. They think they're the good guys. They think that they're doing things for really valid and just reasons. And um, that was something that I wanted to be true in this novel, that I think every character in this book does something that is a betrayal of someone that they love or who trusts them. Conversely, I think that there's no hero in this book either. Everybody has a little bit of, of dirt on their hands. And I wanted sort of all of those characters to be empathetic, even if you weren't necessarily going to forgive them for anything that they did. Um, so I'm glad to hear you say that about nuance. And um, I'll tell you the other uh, the other part of, of my dad's story is that um, when we moved to Shaker Heights, he got a new it was because he got a new job. He was working at uh, NASA Lewis Research Center, which is a research center outside of Cleveland. And 
he was still studying explosions, as far as I understand it. Um, a lot of the nuances in my dad's work got a little bit lost on me. Um, this is what happens when your dad is, is literally a rocket scientist. But my understanding <laughs> is that a lot of what he was doing for NASA had to do with explosions, not as forces of destruction, but as forces of propulsion. That those explosions were going to be able to take you somewhere, to like shoot you out into space and be something that you wanted to sort of be able to control and manage and harness. And I kind of like the idea that he was, you know, working on the same thing and he kind of worked on it from two very different angles. And for me, there's a connection to sort of this idea of good guys and bad guys, you know, about fire as being a really useful tool and also an incredibly destructive force. And it all sort of depends on which side you're on and how you're using it. Well, and the way in which we watch the town take sides, but the narrative doesn't take sides. Like, for instance, the the rich white family, I sort of feel repulsed by the fact that they think that their wealth is somehow a, a part of the demonstration of their competency as as parents. But at the same time, we also get how long they've, they've tried to, all of their issues with infertility and their desperate desire, for instance. And with, with the biological mother, on the one hand, she actually gave up her, she abandoned her child and she abandoned her child in, in the cold. And I remember when you were on NPR, like that was just the, that was, there was no entertainment of the debate anymore for, for your interviewer because of that. But, um, but you do give us that she, you know, not only did she not have a lot of resources, but she didn't even know what resources were available to her at the time. And she's also living in a society without a safety net. Mm -hmm. And so there's all this sort of structural um, context that you give uh, that when she decides that she can take care of her child, uh, you allow that into the picture, perhaps in a way in which the interviewer and a lot of other people might be like, there you go. That's that's not going to be entertained anymore. You sort of force us to continue to entertain it. Yeah, I I mean, I. I think that so often we think about almost everything in life um, as a zero-sum equation, that we have this balance, here are the things that are pro and here are the things that are against, and we look at which way it's tipped. And the fact is that really those two things don't even get measured on the same scale. And so the fact that you know this uh, prospective adoptive couple has a lot of money does not mitigate the fact that they don't know how to connect her to her birth culture. And that isn't even measured on the same scale as the fact that they have been trying for years to have children and it's been very painful for them and they haven't been able to do that. None of those things cancel each other out. They just all coexist. And the problem is that we we sort of want to have sort of easy like, well, this cancels out this and this cancels out this. And so at the end, that's the winning side. And it, it's much more complicated than that. Was one side harder to write toward? When you're looking at empathy and trying to flesh out this picture, this fraught picture around what a mother is and and around race and class and and privilege, how, how did that how did that work for you in terms of the actual process of of getting into the into the scenario? Well, I'm part of a writing group in Boston and I gave my writing group a few early scenes from this book as I was moving along. And in an early version of this sort of adoption subplot, they read the pages and they said, you know what, I feel like the narrative is pushing us to side with the biological mother. We don't know anything about the adoptive parents. And I thought, you know, 
That's actually true. And it maybe is because I am a mother myself and I have a hard time imagining somebody else raising my child or me not being involved in his life. And so that it was at that point that I went back and I really started to dig deeper into the story of the McCulloughs, the adoptive parents, and try and look at the ways in which they also really do have a claim of of um parenthood on this child. They've been raising her since she was a month old. They're the ones who have been doing the work of parenthood every day. They're the ones who are, you know, up with her at night and taking care of her when she has a fever and they do love her. And those things also are reasons for them to consider themselves her parents. And so that was a place where I had to sort of work extra hard to go. I want to try to be empathetic to all sides, um, even if I have my own personal biases. Well, we, we've talked a little bit about various things that have ratcheted up the tension, Mia and Pearl moving to town, this this adoption, but we haven't yet mentioned the literal fire. So I'm hoping you'd be willing to read the beginning sure, of the book, and to. then I can ask you some questions after you read the opening. Sure, absolutely. Everyone in Shaker Heights was talking about it that summer, how Isabel, the last of the Richardson children, had finally gone around the bend and burned the house down. All spring, the gossip had been about little Mirabelle McCullough, or, depending on which side you were on, Mei Ling Chow. And now, at last, there was something new and sensational to discuss. A little afternoon on that Saturday in May, the shoppers pushing their grocery carts in Heinen's heard the fire engines wail to life and careen away toward the duck pond. By a quarter after twelve, there were four of them parked in a haphazard red line along Parkland Drive, where all six bedrooms of the Richardson house were ablaze, and everyone within a half mile could see the smoke rising over the trees like a dense black thundercloud. Later, people would say that the signs had been there all along, that Izzy was a little lunatic, that there had always been something off about the Richardson family, that as soon as they heard the sirens that morning, they knew something terrible had happened. By then, of course, Izzy would be long gone, leaving no one to defend her, and people could, and did, say whatever they liked. At the moment the fire trucks arrived, though, and for quite a while afterward, no one knew what was happening. Neighbors clustered as close to the makeshift barrier, a police cruiser parked crosswise a few hundred feet away as they could, and watched the firefighters unreel their hoses with the grim faces of men who recognized a hopeless cause. Across the street, the geese at the pond ducked their heads underwater for weeds, wholly unruffled by the commotion. So so this book opens with an arson. It opens with the Richardsons, the family we were talking about at the beginning, their house being burnt down, possibly by one of their own daughters. Uh, and that mystery hovers over the entire book. And you have a similar opening in, in your first book, where we begin the book with, with a murder. And I was curious if, um, if these books were influenced by any sort of tropes in the mystery genre, if there's if these are if this opening in both of them is a nod to to something in, in your reading past, you know I didn't even realize that I had done that until um, the, I've started to talk to people about little fires everywhere, and they pointed out, and I went, oh, I did I did do that. Um, the story behind the opening of Everything I Never Told You, where we learn basically the, the most salient fact right up front, which is that Lydia, the middle child, is dead, um, actually came about in conversation with a writer friend of mine. Um, in the first drafts of that book, you didn't know where Lydia was. It was just that she was missing, and you didn't find out where she was until about 30 or 40 pages in, and neither did the characters. And my friend said to me, why are you holding that information back? She said, you know, if you hold that information back, the question people are asking is, 
where is Lydia? And she said, I think what you really want them to be asking is what happened to her? How did she end up dead? And so she said, I think you should put it right in the first chapter. I think you should put that right up front. At the time, I think it was at the end of chapter two. And I thought about it and I realized she was right. And so I decided to actually put it right up at the front of the book. Um, In Little Fires Everywhere, I, I think it came from a similar impulse, which is that I don't want the reader to sort of wonder how exactly are these two families going to sort of come, uh, how, are, how are things between them going to fall apart? I wanted to let them know that we were going to be going somewhere big. And to have them be focused on the how of how we got there rather than the what of what was going to happen. Um, it, it wasn't directly influenced by uh, any particular you know, source or by mysteries, but I wonder if that's part of the reason that people have sometimes talked about these books as being like literary thrillers, because mm-hmm. in a sense, you find out what happens at the end, and then you flash back to find out how that how you got there. Well, you've also said that you sometimes use mystery and suspense to coax readers to read the hard stuff, and you use the example of hiding mm-hmm. spinach in a, in a kid's brownies. And so is, are there books that are spinach brownie books that you think of that that have done this well, that might have inspired you? I think the best books really are spinach brownie books. I mean, the best books for me are books that you really cannot stop just turning pages, where you really want to read them and you stay up way too late um, to to keep going because you're drawn in by the story and the character and the situations. And yet, hopefully, within that, there is some kind of meat to them. Um, There's something in there that's feeding you in a lasting sort of way. Um, So I guess that's the spinach part of the brownie. I love mysteries. My mom is a huge mystery reader. And whenever I go on vacation, I read Agatha Christie novels kind of compulsively. And I stay up way too late, considering that I'm supposed to be on vacation, finishing these books because I need to find out who did this murder. The thing about Agatha Christie novels, though, is that I find I can read them over and over again because I forget what happened in them. And so in that sense, they're a huge joy to me. And I could never write anything as intricate as what she does. But they're not, for me, tapping into something that is going to stick with me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just, they're doing a different thing. And the best books that I have um, really kind of open up a lot of questions for me, and that's, I guess, the spinach part of it. So examples of that, um, Beloved by Toni Morrison is one of my very favorite books of all time. And it is a book where when I read it, I read it sort of in a fevered state as I just I needed to know what was happening. There was this ghost. There was this, you know, this story about what had happened to, you know, this woman and all of these things. And I really needed to know how these pieces were going to come together. Once I finish the book, though, what I leave is not thinking about the ghost story and about, you know, the kind of supernatural elements of what happened, the things that sucked me in. I leave sort of thinking about questions about legacy and about what's left behind and how we move um, through something as big and traumatic as slavery and whether those scars ever go away or are they always going to be with us, right? So um, I think that really that's always sort of the um, the goal that I'm moving towards is that I'm, I want the reader to be entertained, but I also want there to be something in this book that opens up their mind or mm-hmm. changes something for them. That's really well said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was unplanned, so thank you. <laughs> Good um, question. So both of the books open with a crime that's set in the story that sets the story in motion in small town Ohio. But you've also written about a real crime that happened in, in Shaker Heights in a piece for the Kenyan Review called Captioning Emily. And I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about why you decided to write about 
Emily and, and what happened in that in that crime. So captioning Emily is about a classmate of mine from Shaker Heights High School. Uh, we were in the same grade and we were in homeroom together because it was alphabetical and her last name was Murray and mine was Ng. So we were a few seats apart from each other um, and we got to know each other reasonably well. And we'd been friendly in high school. And when we went off to college, we lost touch. And um, partway through high school, I learned that she had disappeared. And what had actually happened was that she had been kidnapped and she had been murdered. Mm. And police eventually found her body in a trailer um, of a a co-worker. He was uh, a cook at the restaurant where she had been a waitress. And it turned out actually that he had killed several other people as well. And this was a really huge shock for me and for... I think all of us in our in our class, because it, for a lot of us, it was the first experience we'd had with someone our age and death. And even though uh, her killer was found and was brought to trial and was convicted and he's currently sitting on death row, there were so many questions that I had and, you know, that everyone who knew her and paid attention to the case, I think, had. And I wanted to write a piece that looked at just how unknowable all of those answers were and that kind of reckoned with that. And what I found over the years is I followed this case and I periodically still sort of check to see what's happening with her killer. He's, as far as I know, still on death row and he's appealing. Um, I, I found that there were a lot of people who were trying to make meaning out of this horrible event and all kinds of people making all kinds of different meaning. And so, for example, white supremacists looked at this and held her up as a poster child because Emily was white and the man who killed her was black. And they felt that this supported their argument of white superiority. Um, People who were in favor of the death penalty held up this case as an example of why we should have the death penalty. Emily herself was very firmly opposed to the death penalty. And so anti-death penalty advocates held it up as saying, you know, we need to respect the, the rights of the victim and so on and so on and so on. And in trying to sort of figure out what meaning I could make out of it, um, I looked at what all these other, you know, groups were were thinking about the case and how they were trying to make meaning out of essentially what is to us a senseless event. And that was kind of where I landed. Um, I wrote about her because she had been a friend And then we had lost touch and you sort of assume that whoever you don't see, they're out there in the world and their, their lives are sort of continuing onwards. And when you learn that that's not the case, um, it's really shocking. I mean, it's shocking when anyone that, you know, dies, but, um, she had been somebody that I had connected with even briefly and had made a really big impact on me. And I wanted to sort of try and do justice to her. I wanted her life and her death to be meaningful. And so that was a piece that I wrote, and I wasn't actually sure that I was ever going to publish it. Um, It was something that I really wrote because I was trying to understand it. And um, I wrote it for a class in which the last assignment was that we had to promise that we were going to revise our essays and send them out. Mm. This was in graduate school. And I had promised that I would do it. And so I finished the essay, and then I sat on it for about five years. And then I finally submitted it. Um, for publication and I sent it to the Kenyan Review because Emily had been a student at Kenyon and um, so they published it and and one of the nicest things that happened from that is that Emily's parents found the essay and read it and got in touch with me and said you know thank you it's we're really happy to hear that you know our daughter meant something to you Um, so that's I think just one of the stories about how writing is often a way of just trying to make meaning and the meaning that different people make of it is going to be very personal, but that it's always sort of an, an exploration of trying to understand something that seems to us unfathomable. 
the way you describe how different people are assigning different meaning to this is part of the reason why I wanted to bring it up because it reminded me of of the adoption debate in the book in the sense that the adoption ends up becoming a black box and everyone sort of projects their own value system onto a screen instead of really like looking at the details and and if if people haven't read your work yet I would I would argue that the way you articulated this the way you sort of held the space for everybody, the way everyone is projecting onto Emily's death, including white supremacists, um, that you sort of circumambulate the issue and give the voices and the complexity. I think that's a really great way to describe the the what's compelling about little fires everywhere. It's, I think that's a, I'm realizing that's a concern of mine just in a lot of my writing. And um, it's something that I've done in both of my novels so far, as well as in the essay that I'm really interested sort of in the, the ways that different people are going to see things differently. Um, in everything I never told you, it focuses on five members of one family and all of them are keeping secrets from each other. All of them misunderstand each other. There are many instances in which two characters have an argument and they are hearing completely different things than the other person believes that they're saying. And um, that is a similar thing to what's happening in Little Fires Everywhere, which is that, you know, characters are interpreting different events really, really differently. And I feel like that's sort of one of the fundamental um, problems of being human is that it is very difficult for us to communicate what it is that we actually mean um, to other people. There's always going to be a little bit of a, um, a scream or a little bit of distortion that's coming through. And so a lot of human experience, I feel like, is sort of that quest to be perfectly understood by somebody. Mm-hmm. I'd like to look a little bit at differences in approach that are generational. So you you talked earlier about uh, the 1990s maybe being part of the reason why in Little Fires Everywhere uh, we're, we're getting these responses that seem to be about uh, colorblindness being a good thing. But you've also written about a difference between generations in terms of uh, and in terms of how they would deal with racism and sexism in the piece that you wrote in the New York Times Magazine about your mother and, and Betty Crocker. And I was, I was hoping you could share a little bit about what what you're uh, interrogating in that piece. And then I would like to maybe loop that in back to, to the book you just wrote, too. Yeah, the New York Times piece was um, a, an essay about my mom and her Betty Crocker cookbook, which um, has a cameo role in Everything I Never Told You, my first book. And um, this is the cookbook that I remembered from my childhood, the cookbook that we referred to when mostly when we wanted to make cookies is generally what we were cooking. And um, I only realized when I got older sort of how odd of an artifact that was that my mom had this Betty Crocker cookbook. And anytime we needed to know something, we'd go refer to the cookbook. And my mom herself was not um, what I'd call a domestic kind of person. Um, She is a chemist. She uh, got a PhD. She supervised a lab. She did her own research. She... Um, mentored grad students. And she was not the sort of Betty Crocker that I saw on the cover, who's, you know, very concerned with homemaking and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And I wanted to figure out what my mother was doing with this cookbook and how she reconciled the life that this cookbook was telling her um, she was supposed to have with the life that she actually chose to lead. This particular edition of the cookbook, which um, came out in 1968, has a lot of um, little notes at the beginning of each recipe that say things like, the man you marry will know the way he likes his eggs. So it behooves a good housewife to you know, know how to prepare eggs in six different ways. And it has all these sort of notes about how you're supposed to be living your life. And it was not at all how my mom lived her life. 
And so that essay was sort of an exploration of the the ways in which she sort of decided to kind of shrug those ideas off. And I I really admire how much strength of will that must have taken to not pay attention to those to those issues. Um, and it's something that I, I think I'm exploring in both of the novels um, in terms of women especially and what they're being told they're supposed to want or supposed to do as mothers, as wives, and just as women versus what it is that they want to do and you know whether they feel f- fulfilled by that or whether they have regrets about the path not taken. And how much of this do you view as a generational uh phenomenon around immigrants or maybe specifically Chinese American immigrants uh, or not. And what I mean by that is it seems like your mother, she's, she's foregrounding the practicality and usefulness of this book. She needs to make these recipes. They have the right recipes. I'm just going to disregard all of this sexism. I'm not going to dwell on how offensive it is. I'm, it's a, it's a book that I need and she used it a lot. Uh, and I wonder like, for instance, for you say, I suspect that you're sometimes marketed or promoted as an Asian American writer, whether or not you want that designation. I don't know if you do or you don't, but you probably aren't always asked. Uh, and I wondered, do you, would you, do you, or would you respond to that differently because you see yourself a generation removed, um, more confrontationally, less confrontationally, or, or, or did you see a continuity there? That is a really good question. And I'm thinking about, uh, I'm not being coy. I'm thinking about how to answer it. I do think that there is a generational difference and there is sort of a difference in in lifestyle that I when I think about my parents and what they did as immigrants, they came over here in the 60s. They were quite young. They were students and they really kind of worked their way up. Um, I really sort of my mind boggles at just sort of how tough that must have been for them and how much work they had to do. And um, I think that my mom's attitude is sort of like, well, I'm already here. I've I have to get these things done. I have to do this. I don't really care what people think about it because I need to get this done. And she's a very practical person, and so I think that that's that's a strength she has that I, I sometimes wish I had. Um, now, in terms of how I view myself versus how other people view me or what they think I'm supposed to be doing, um, I feel like I push back on that in ways that she she sort of decided she wasn't going to push back, but she was just going to kind of go around. Um, And I think a lot of that is because I have privileges that she didn't have, you know, that I have more financial stability in my life than she did as a young newlywed and immigrant. Um, And I feel also like our culture is in a place where we're able to have more discussion. Whereas I think there wasn't space for that kind of discussion um, in the 60s and 70s when my mom was sort of going through these things that, you know, that was in the time period where people really were talking about what women were supposed to be doing. And I, I feel like that issue was so fraught at the time. Hmm. Well, both, both of your books are clearly novels, yet they're both motivated from questions from your real life. You wrote this interesting essay called Why We Need Fiction in a World of Memoirs that talks about a couple phenomena you were witnessing one, that readers were less and less savvy at separating fiction from nonfiction. And you gave several examples. I think one was um, mistaking the persona of Stephen Colbert for the actual Stephen Colbert and maybe that confusion leading him to being at the at the, uh, uh, the White, White House, House Correspondence Center. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then two, that you, you talk about people feeling like a story is better if it is true. And if the story is better, if it is true, why do we need fiction at all is sort of the the corollary to that. Uh, So tell us why we need fiction. Why 
write these books as fiction versus taking your your questions and anxieties around Shaker Heights or around um, interracial adoption and marriage um, and writing something that felt closer to what reflected you. Yeah, I think that we really do need both. We need fiction and nonfiction because they just serve really different ends. And I choose to write fiction because that's uh, it's just sort of my comfort zone. That's what I write about. But what I think fiction can do that's different from what nonfiction does is that it really actively asks us to empathize with other characters, uh, with with people who are maybe not like us, with people who um, maybe are very, very different from us. Fiction has the ability to really put us inside somebody else's head to make us feel the things that they are feeling and to make us think their thoughts in ways that almost no other medium can do. The other difference is that nonfiction, I think, gets a lot of its power from the kind of idea of testifying, that you are there to tell somebody about something that really happened to you. And their belief in what you're saying is predicated on the fact that you promise them that it's true. And in fiction, the opposite happens, where you say, this is not true, but I'm going to tell you something, and there's still going to be some meaning that comes out of it. Um, one example that I like to give um, is if I if I told you, okay, I'm, I'm going to write a short story, and I'm going to have two um, identical twin brothers in it, so they're going to look exactly alike, and uh, they're both going to be poets. They're both going to be very successful poets. And um, but one of them is going to be a minimalist and then the other is going to be a maximalist. And also they're going to have a very brief movie cameo in a movie. The look that you're giving me right now is sort of like this. This is not a good story. This is completely <laughs> improbable. Now, if I say to you, there are actually two brothers who are named Matthew and Michael Dickman. Um, I think they have roots in Portland. Actually, they, yeah, they do. yeah, I was like, it's, so one of them is married to a classmate of mine from grad school. So I know them somewhat. And they're both wonderful poets, and one of them is a maximalist. Uh, Matthew Dickman is a maximalist. His poems are bombastic and huge, and Michael Dickman is kind of a minimalist. There's a lot of white space in them. And they they did, in fact, have a cameo. They were the precogs in Minority Report. Um, (laughs) So if I tell you that, you are approaching this story differently, and you're willing to believe what I'm saying because I say, no, 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 these are really true stories. These are actual people. I have met both of them. I have seen them in the same place. One of them is married to a good friend of mine. You know, the amount of credibility you give me is sort of different if I promise you that that this is true, right? And if I say to you instead, I'm going to tell you a story, I have to do a lot of different kinds of work to convince you of that. And a lot of that work really is kind of building empathy. And that's where I think fiction really excels, that um, if you can ask somebody to empathize with a story that you tell them up front is untrue with characters who you tell them up front are not real, a lot of times that gives them enough distance to sort of see what underlying issues you're talking about much more clearly. I think that often when you tell somebody this is a true story, uh, a lot of times sort of the moral is a little too clear. And a lot of times if you give someone a little bit of space, um, you allow them to say, oh, well, that's not me, but I can see things about me that relate to this story. It's easier for them to be self-reflective in that way than it is if you hold the mirror right up to their face. And that's one of the reasons that I think we also need fiction, even as we, we still need nonfiction. Yeah. Well, you know how we've talked about different time periods and different sort of expectations or pressures on people. And you wrote this this essay before the era of fake news, before the post-factual era. Um, and I was curious if your thoughts about being a writer in a world where 
people all believing now what they want to believe or creating their own experts and there are not necessarily shared a shared base of common assumptions. Does that change anything in that regard or is that really not something that intersects with this argument? I think it is related to that that argument. Um, So I wrote this essay in 2008, so it's almost 10 years old now. And I think one of the things that it takes for granted is the idea that we accept that there are such things as facts and that there are things that can be objectively verified. Um, The issue of fake news that we hear a lot about now, um, I feel like the, the, the... the reason that we haven't been able to sort of get anywhere and that I can't even really call it a discussion is that a lot of times what happens is that people just deny actual known, quantifiable, verifiable facts. And if you can't agree sort of on any sort of pole of reality, then you can't actually have a discussion. Um, so I think that when we talk about fiction and nonfiction, we still have to agree that there are things that are true in the world. And if we don't have that, then I don't know how we can have any kind of discourse. Yeah. yeah. It seems to put us in an entirely different category. Right. It's like when, you know, you you say things like, okay, here is a photograph. Here are 20 witnesses who were there who saw, you know, this police officer shoot this person or here's the, the body cam footage. They all agree with each other and people still say, oh, no, it's all fake. You can't, you know, there's, there's not a lot that you can do at that point um, because you're not you're sort of not even agreeing that we all live in the same reality. Mm-hmm. And that I don't know what to do about. Yeah. Well, to switch the topic entirely, um, you wrote you wrote for Bustle magazine uh, f- something about their 31 days of reading of, uh, for resistance to name books that you'd recommend for political resistance. And so maybe this isn't switching the topic so much, but you mentioned Rebecca Solnit, Claudia Rankin, Margaret Atwood, but one le- one book leapt out at me, and I was just curious if you could talk about book five of the Harry Potter <laughs> series, The Order of the Phoenix, and, t- and sure. tell, us, tell us about book five of Harry Potter in, in I, relationship to political resistance. All right, so if, if anyone hasn't read the Harry Potter series, I don't know if there are such people out there, but... Um, uh, Harry Potter is at um, Hogwarts, which is the School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And um, at this point in the series, is seven books, so this is close to the middle, um, the, the forces of darkness are rising. And there has been a um, sort of a, a, a member of the government has been installed at the school to kind of keep order and basically to be the watchdog because they think that this school is sort of fomenting um, resistance. And um, it comes in the the persona of this um, horrible woman named Dolores Umbridge. And she is constantly creating new regulations about what the students are not allowed to do. So they're not allowed to gather in groups of more than three. They're not allowed to have clubs, you know, unless they've been approved, all of these sorts of things. So they're they're really um, students. They're all teenagers uh, and adolescents under this sort of repressive regime. And hopefully not giving too much away of the book again, if there's anybody out there who hasn't read it, there's a moment in, uh, in the book where the students kind of revolt against this, um, this woman who's been installed. She's driven out their beloved headmaster. She's kind of exerting her control. She's got a, a crowd of goons that she's recruited with favors who are supposed to inform on the, their fellow students. 
and um, the students start resisting. They create um, a, a, a group where they're going to learn to defend themselves with magic, and they meet in this secret room. And there's a fantastic moment where two of the troublemakers in the school um, basically decide to go out with a literal bang, and they take down a chandelier, and they blow out the ceiling, and they leave. And Which is both explosion as propulsion and explosion as destruction. As destruction, right. It, it goes both ways. <laughs> Um, and so that was a moment where um, in reading the book, I kind of wanted to stand up and cheer because we've been, um, you know, we're on the side of the narrative asks us to be on the side of the the kids who are trying to do good. Um, there's clear good and evil in this series. Um, and we're not asked to sympathize with Dolores Umbridge. And she's in the service of um, some really evil people. But it's it's a moment in which um, you see people who have been. Um, stripped of power, who haven't been uh, allowed to do what they want and who have sort of been at the whims of this um, this kind of dictator actually taking a stand and actually getting the upper hand, even if just momentarily. And that feeling that um, people who are powerless don't always have to be powerless, that there is something that can be done, um, is really inspirational. So it's a little bit of a cheesy sort of message, but it's a moment in which um, when I was reading this book for the first time, um, my father had just died. I was sort of, um, I had gotten out of college and I was sort of in that stage where I was realizing that I was supposed to be an adult. And for the first time I was having to deal with all of these adult things and the world felt very overwhelming. And to see these students who say, well, our teacher isn't going to teach us how to protect ourselves, so we're going to teach ourselves. Um, you know, our teachers can't help us um, get rid of this woman, so we are going to do it. Um, was really sort of empowering, and I feel like that's a lot of what we – that we need that spirit now, the feeling of like, well, if our government isn't going to do this – we will step up. Mm. Um, I think we see that like with um, the hurricane relief in Puerto Rico where we're saying the government's response is not adequate and we will keep pressuring them, but we're also going to step up. And you see people like Lin-Manuel Miranda stepping up and rounding up the troops and single-handedly gathering money. Um, it, it's. It, I don't want to talk about how things should be necessarily, but the feeling that we are not powerless is, I feel like that's the key to all resistance. Mm. Well, that's a great place to end the interview today. So, is it too early to ask you what you're working on next? Um, I I have a couple of ideas, and I'm sort of waiting for them to um, to kind of coalesce. I've got two ideas that are kind of competing with each other, and so I'm in the really fun stage where I get to go down a lot of internet rabbit holes, and I get to do a lot of reading and research about really disparate topics that I think might work their way into one of these books, and I'm sort of seeing what um, what kind of rises to the surface. So I. I can never get started until I sort of have an idea of the shape of the project, and I'm still in the process of kind of figuring out the shapes. Are they both novels? I think they are both novels, although I also have some short stories that I'm trying to finish up. I do. I love the short story form, and I have a few that have been sitting and waiting patiently for me to finish them. And I'm hoping that maybe now that I've written the novel, I know enough to go back and finish the short story. Yeah. And are they both in Ohio? One of, I don't know, one of them has not taken a place yet. The other one I think probably will be set in Cambridge if it's set anywhere. So we're moving. We might be moving, yes. It was great having you on the show today, Celeste. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. We were talking today to Celeste Ng about her second novel, Little Fires Everywhere. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, 
listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.